Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, and welcome to the show. You're on the Road to Recovery, and I'm Yona Bud, your host for this evening. Thank you for joining us. We're so glad you could be here, and uh, we're glad you made the choice to join us because we know you have other choices to join other people, but we're glad you came, and we are happy to be here with you. You can reach me tonight if you want for most of the segments at 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK, and our staff will take the calls, and hopefully we'll be able to get through to you and uh, you to us, and we can share your information. That's what we're doing here on this show. We're sharing information one to the other and trying to help one another kind of get through the day kind of thing and you know make a make a difference where we can and provide some advice where we can get some advice when we can so you know jump in got something to say we want to hear from you you know i'll tell you what i've been dealing with a lot of people uh just in case you don't know i'm a therapist i deal with mental health and addiction i inpatient outpatient i deal with kids and youth and i'm a coach i do all kinds of stuff related to mental health and wellness helping people basically get comfortable in their own skin and you know what the 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 problem that I am having with a lot of young adults and 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 you know teenagers for that matter when we talk about being clean and sober is it becomes a real problem in their social life. And you know if it becomes a problem in your social life chances are you're not going to adopt so quickly to a sober lifestyle and try to get back into the life that you you know you thought you were enjoying before when you were drinking but you really weren't right you were just getting hammered and thought you were having a a good time. And it was a lot of fun, probably a lot of fun, but probably not the great time you thought it was because you weren't in the middle of it because you were so drunk, right. Or stoned or whatever. So what we're talking about is people living a healthy lifestyle, having relationships with people, some of whom they were with together before they were sober and some of whom they're now finding now that they are sober. And the whole concept of being sober in society today and having a social life and meeting new people and dating and going to parties and stuff like that, it's a real problem, my friends. It's a real problem. It's one thing to say no to a joint. It's one thing to say, no, I don't do cocaine. When someone offers you a line, certainly pills and all that kind of stuff, that's easy to walk away from. It's just not as natural as something like drinking, for example, or even smoking a cigarette. So when you want to be sober, we're talking about the sobriety, you know, around drinking alcohol for the most part, you know, smoking a joint. Does that make you sober, not sober? I think if you're high, you're not sober. I think if you're drinking, you're not sober. I think sober is sober and stimulated is otherwise. But not everybody has a problem. But for people that have a problem and for people that just can't have a casual drink here and there. Long-term relationships, getting into them, getting out of them sometimes because perhaps your mate isn't as keen on getting sober as you are. And then what do you do? You know, this is the person that for years and years and years used to have drinks on Saturday, Fridays and Saturday nights and often go over the top just a little bit. So what we're talking about tonight is sobriety in your long-term relationships. And if you're just joining us, I'm Yona Bud. You're on the road to recovery. Thank you for being here. Talking about navigating your life while being sober. If drinking is a part of your couple identity, quitting can be hard if the other person wants to party. And I'll tell you, it's like looking at it this way. All of a sudden, I decide to lose weight and I'm not no longer having carbs in the house. But let's just say my wife, Pumpkin, and it's not the case. It's usually the other way around. My wife, Pumpkin, loves carbs. Am I expecting that she's going to stop eating carbs because I have? Maybe not. 
but it might be easier for me if she didn't. Am I expecting, is a person expecting their spouse to stop drinking because they have? It's probably going to be easier for them if they don't, especially if you're in, in an intimate relationship. The last thing you want to do if you've ever quit smoking is kiss another smoker. The same applies for alcohol. The smell and taste of wine in someone else from someone else's mouth, if you're fortunate enough to have a relationship with someone who wants to kiss you and get close enough to you that you can smell them and they, they smell you in terms of your breath in particular here, it's an easy trigger. It's an easy situation to go over the edge and decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a drink too. So how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you, how do you take a, a relationship with someone? I, I deal with it all the time, by the way. You know, a relationship with someone, you've been together for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, five years, and they don't have a drinking problem, but you do. So you stop drinking, but they don't really have to. Should they or shouldn't they? Depends on who you ask. You know, I tell, I tell the, the friends and the family and the support people in the lives of my patients that it's probably a really good thing for the first while for sure if there wasn't so much booze around. If perhaps Christmas had a little less booze or perhaps Saturday, you know, Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon dinners after church had a little less wine, right? Probably a good idea if the barbecues on Sunday afternoon, maybe a few less beers for the person who's trying to get sober. Because if, it's, if you have a problem with getting sober, if you have an addiction issue, just having it around can be a real big problem. It can be, you know, like I said, can be a trigger, not just smelling it, but just sometimes seeing it. And I have patients that say to me, Yona, what about near beer? You know, it's not beer. It doesn't have alcohol. It tastes the same. I can carry around the bottle and it looks like I'm drinking. So no one's going to know I'm sober. My answer is very slippery slope. But you know what? If you're with someone who's with you, in a way that they want what's best for you. I tell people all the time, if all of a sudden your husband or wife or brother or sister came home and said, or son or daughter came home and said, I have an allergy to peanuts. My doctor said, if I'm anywhere near peanuts, I could die. I look at the families and say, would you have any peanuts in the house? They all look at me, of course, and they shake their heads and go, of course not, Yona. So too with alcohol in this particular case. You know, when people have you know, when people have a, a, a connection and they're doing things together, you know, my, my wife and I, Pumpkin, my, my wife and I, her name isn't really Pumpkin. I just call her Pumpkin. She, we, don't, we don't want to use her name on the air. Uh, her choice, not mine. I tell everybody who she was if I had my chance, but we call her Pumpkin. Anyway, Pumpkin and I talk about things, share things, try to do some of the same things. A bunch of years ago, she was fighting uh, cancer and thank God is in recovery for many, many years now. Um, but she became a vegetarian, not a vegan per se, but a vegetarian, no more meat, right? No more meat. And I love meat. What can I tell you? It's not great for me, especially red meat, you know, but chicken, veal, you know, turkey, all that kind of stuff. I hope I'm not turning you vegans and vegetarians off, but I like it. Not all the time, but certainly I like it. She didn't expect me to quit, right? She didn't expect me to quit eating meat. And I didn't expect her to cook it all up for me because it's going to be difficult for her. Well, it turns out it wasn't. So I think if there's a good communication and perhaps if there's two people in the house, one trying to get sober and the other, maybe while in the house, we can have a sober ruling. Maybe while in the house, we can keep the alcohol consumption down to next to nothing. Maybe when going out for dinner and you're with your husband or your wife, so you don't order that extra glass of wine. But you know what? When you go out with your girlfriends or buddies or buddy, you go golfing with your buddies or go with your, your, your girlfriends or your, your crew, whoever you hang out with, 
and you're not with your spouse or your loved one, you feel like having a few drinks. I think that's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Just recognize when you come in the house that you better smell like a Tic Tac or like a Listerine strip instead of like a bottle of wine or a bottle of beer, because likely it's going to help make it more difficult for your spouse to stay clean and sober. It doesn't have to end a relationship, but it can certainly strain one if you don't go about it properly. You need to talk to one another. You need to share. You need to discuss it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I need to get sober. I got a problem with my drinking. I need your help and support. Can you do it with me? And if the person says, no, I have no interest in getting sober, then you have to really look at the motivation and the kind of relationship that you share with these people. Sobriety is a big deal. It's difficult to do for a lot of people. It's one thing to stay out of a bar and out of, out of restaurants where they serve it and away from parties where they serve it. But at home, when it's right, you know, doors are closed, you're late at night, there's a couple of bottles of beer in the fridge because your wife or your husband are still drinking. It's a temptation you probably don't need for the first year, at least. So you can make it work. It doesn't have to be a problem. Dating is a whole different problem. We'll have that discussion another night because that's a whole you know, conversation about, of, of its own. How do you go out and date in a sober world? So what I want you to focus on is support and understanding what sacrifices mean when you're in a relationship with somebody. Sometimes we have to do things we may not like to do. You know, I used to love splitting a steak with my wife or, 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 or splitting a veal sandwich or splitting something that we would share together. So now we split other things, vegetarian things, pasta without meat, things that have, you know, just don't have meat in them. And guess what? I'm learning to enjoy a whole bunch of things that I didn't have before. And we're getting along just great. It doesn't affect me and it doesn't affect her because we came to a mutual decision that we're going to support one another. And if I'm having a hard time and I need to have a you know piece of steak and she's not up for it, I can go to a restaurant and do that. I don't need her to do that. Anyway, we're going to be back here. we got so much more to share with you tonight. You are on the road to recovery. Thank you for joining us. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. Um, how are you all doing tonight? I hope you're having a good time. You're on the road to recovery here with Yonabud. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Heather and uh, trying to make things work for everybody and talking about the stuff that we hope makes a bit of a difference for everybody. And um, yeah, it's just really nice that we're able to get together here. I know you have other choices and we're glad you choose us. So thanks for being here. Ontario judge uh, recently rejected a constitutional challenge of law on the cannabis impaired driving uh, situation. And it comes as a result of a woman who was killed, uh, struck by struck by a driver and killed and her three young daughters in Brampton about two years ago. And the, the Brad, uh, Brady Robertson is the, um, uh, he pleaded guilty to four counts of dangerous driving, causing death in connection with the June 18, 2020 uh, collision that killed uh, the family. He pleaded not guilty for four counts of operation while impaired by drugs causing death. And his lawyers filed a constitutional challenge of Canada's law, setting out a legal limit for THC. So not exactly sure what that means, a legal limit. But if you've smoked a joint, I'm not sure how much THC that is, but probably shouldn't get behind the wheel of a car and drive, right? So they argued that the limit of five nanograms means nothing to you, means very little to me as well, of THC per milliliter of blood within two hours of driving is an arbitrary and overbroad because it doesn't uh, correlate to impairment. 
Defense lawyers have raised as a hypothetical uh, scenario that the possibility that a frequent cannabis users could have residual THC from legal limits, even, you know, from maybe the night before. It does carry over, right? And that becomes part of the issue of how we control all of this kind of stuff. We have an amazing guest with us this evening. His name is Michael Spratt. He is a lawyer with AGP LLP. They're a law firm here in Toronto. He specializes in criminal law, and he's going to join us tonight to talk about um, some of this uh, stuff as it relates to these new cannabis laws. Thanks for joining us tonight, Michael. How are you? No problem. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for joining us. Um, listen, the, the, the issue really becomes with the fact that very few people really understand, I think, including law enforcement, how to keep track of THC as a uh, substance in one's system, as it may or may not relate to impairment from a, from a, just from your own personal experiences or from a legal, strictly legal profession perspective. And we'll get to your personal views later. Um, how does this really play out in a in a court battle such as this, where you know someone's killed someone as a result of being impaired allegedly by cannabis, uh, or I guess it's proven by cannabis, and um, now we're arguing with what percentage of cannabis is enough? Sounds like we're going back to the days of uh, how much booze is enough. Yeah, I mean, we we had that how much booze is too much debate, and that and it's a long settled long settled legal issue. I mean, specifically for cannabis and alcohol, you can be impaired by any amount of alcohol, even if you're under the legal limit. But what they were saying in this case is that the legal limit of five nanograms per milliliter of blood um, is arbitrary. We know generally people at at uh, 80, milli- 80 uh, milliliters of alcohol per, uh, per 100 milliliters of blood, that they are impaired at that level. We've studied that. There has been decades and decades of study on that. And it was easy to study because alcohol was, was legal. There was, has been less study on cannabis. Um, people are less familiar with cannabis. They're less familiar with uh, the point at which they become impaired. And um, because cannabis has been illegal, there's just been less study and experience with it. And it's also, you know, uh, metabolized and, and present in our body differently. And so, you know, this is the first of what I suspect will be probably a continuing battle all the way up to the Supreme Court about is that five nanogram amount? Is that enough? Is it reasonable or is it just sort of a number pulling out of a hat with with not much to back it up? So let's from a perspective of five nanograms, what does that relate to in terms of smoking a joint? Do you have any any kind of uh, correlation or any kind of comparison from just a street user's perspective? Is that like a half a gram, a gram? Like, can we measure it in that way? It's hard to measure in the, that way, and that's that's what led to the reasonable uh, hypothetical of a heavy user right. who um, you know might smoke. And the expert evidence in this case was um, might smoke four times a week could have sort of a baseline level of THC in their blood that might exceed uh, the legal limit. Now, the the case also pointed out that there are studies that show that someone who smokes at that level might be a worse driver anyway. But there were also other hypotheticals that that the judge found were not founded in the evidence, but were definitely uh, discussed at committee when when parliament was considering what the legal limit should be you know a user who who uh, is a first time user who smokes at night might still have residual thc uh, in their blood the next morning and not be impaired and people using um uh cannabis for therapeutic um exactly. therapeutic reasons yeah. like a cancer yeah. patient yeah um, so 
it's hard to tell. You can generally tell, um, you know, if I have one drink, uh, I know I'm okay. Um, you know, some people, and I think it's reasonable, think that any alcohol is too much to get behind the wheel. But, you know, one drink, I'm okay. And if I have three drinks, I might not be okay to drive now, but I will be uh, tomorrow morning. It's a lot harder for individuals to make that choice and calibrate stuff uh, when we're looking at THC and cannabis. So we have a, a ton of questions and very little time. So I'm going to try to get as many in as I can. Uh, the testing that's being used today have have last I've heard that no one's really landed on um, kind of a uh, uh, a testing platform that that's actually verifiable and, and works. Is there one that we're using now that's you know that is going to be challenged in court, or is there a, an accepted uh, uh, system now that people are using that? It has proven to be a little more reliable. Yeah, there are approved instruments that, that can be used um, at the roadside. And a lot of police forces decided not to use those instruments because they didn't operate in winter conditions, which is a bit of a problem in Canada, or they needed to be kept perfectly level at all times, which is hard when you're driving around. What we're generally seeing is when we're looking at uh, impaired by drug charges, there's roadside screening coordination tests, and then there's drug records recognition experts. That deals with impairment, but it doesn't deal with the amount. When we're looking at amounts like this, generally we're looking at blood tests and and compelled sampling of someone's blood. And usually we're only seeing that in these very serious cases as as this case, which resulted in in, a very tragic and unfortunate deaths. I have a whole bunch of patients that use CBD um, that... um, you know, as a result of having CBD, they test positive for THC without the impairment of the THC. Uh, and tons of patients use it for anxiety, for depression, for eating disorders, and so on. Uh, and some actually use THC for some pain management, uh, but they can drive. I mean, they use their meds in a proper way. They don't use the THC unless it's in the evening before they go to bed. They wake up in the morning. It's still prevalent in their system. Uh, they, you know, they're regular daily, maybe two, three time a day users of either CBD or THC. Is it such that they're not going to be able to drive? Well, after this case, um, you know, there should be some concern on their part. Part of Parliament's intent with this legislation was to act as a, as a deterrent, as a preventative measure. Right. And by virtue of that, it may capture, and the judge found here, that this law might capture some people who actually aren't impaired. But, um, but that, that sort of overbreadth is reasonable in the circumstances. Um, and that there is some connection. There was some expert evidence in this case dealing with you know, how people became impaired. And it seems that the evidence that was presented um, was that uh, you know, most people at, at five nanograms are, uh, are impaired, uh, do exhibit signs of impairment. Now, that might also capture some people that aren't impaired. And the same can be said with, with the alcohol standard. If you have a habitual heavy drinker, they might not be impaired over the, over the 80, 80 milligram legal limit. But we have made a choice, Parliament has made a choice that is better to be broad and capture more people in this preventative legislation, given, um, given the purposes of, of, of the laws. Uh, then be more restrictive. So yes, those people should be careful. And indeed, when we see further court challenges, when we see appeals, um, court should definitely be presented with evidence like that. Because if if we can expand sort of the hypotheticals that court considers, um, and it can capture vulnerable people, it can capture you know not just heavy users, but people um, like that, like the people that you've mentioned, that might change um, uh, the court's decision. I have one more quick question for you. Um, 
based on your experiences practicing law, uh, is this going to be something you think is going to keep the courts challenged for quite some time? Or is it going to be something you think they're going to have a swift uh, return because there's so many cases pending? Yeah, nothing in the justice system. Nothing in the justice system, unfortunately, is swift. Um, so what what I expect we'll see is an appeal of this case to the, the Court of Appeal. Um, while the issue is outstanding, there may be dozens of other cases uh, going on in Ontario and across the provinces. Um, then uh, in three or four years, we might see some of those cases from various provinces make their way to the Supreme Court for a final decision. So there's going to be uncertainty for a while. And that's sort of the unfortunate reality of, of the way the legal system's organized. I'm talking to Michael Spratt. He's a lawyer with AGP LLP and uh, sharing with us uh, some information around the cannabis laws moving forward. We'll definitely have you back, Michael, as this thing unfolds and uh, see how we can uh, see how this thing's going to play out for everyone, because I think it's going to be a mess for a lot of people, especially medical users. And that's my biggest concern. Uh, Michael Spratt from AGP LLP. This is Jonah Bud on the road to recovery. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Jonah Bud only on 640 Toronto. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You are on the road to recovery. And my guest this evening is going to talk with us here about, um, you know, eating disorders, what's going on in the media. I want to just share some stuff here and uh, let me let you know, it goes like this, right? So there, the pro eating disorder, there's a whole group of people out there, these on, on the internet, on this within social media that are, Serving up the wrong kind of messages. When I say the wrong kind of messages, is I mean it's impacting people who have eating issues and um, problems with you know keeping their their uh, their body image in line and being happy with who they are in their own skin. And quick searches, like for example on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, using hashtags like thinspo or uh, you know others here that are you know what what how what if I, how much can I eat in a day and still lose ten pounds? Like there's all these things out there that are considered pro um, pro ed content as it relates to extreme um, glamorization around calorie reduction restrictions, uh, extreme exercise programs, purging laxative uh, laxative teas as a means by which to, to keep weight in check. And those that suffer with anorexia or pro bulimia or, you know, bulimia uh, or other forms of eating disorders, it, this really spins a lot of people into a really bad spot. And, you know, the type of contents leading people to pursue and achieve very dangerous weight goals. So without a doctor, without somebody, a nutritionist, some expert that's there to kind of guide you through the process of what's good for you, you know, maybe being a size five is where you need to be and a size three is probably not healthy for you. If you're looking at, you know, women's sizes in clothes or men's sizes, you know, do you really need to be a smaller is a medium good enough because it suits you better. You know, you have to get the proper fit for what works for you and not everyone looks the same, nor should they look the same and weight goals need to be developed with someone who understands it. Eating disorders become a mental illness if they're not handled properly, or they can be driven by a mental illness. It requires good medical attention to make sure you're lined up to do all the right things so that you're healthy, not both just in your mind, but in your body, make sure that you're getting all of the right things every day. And by not eating and only drinking water or whatever that silly diet might be that no one really told you how to do properly. It's probably not a really good thing. My guest tonight is Heather Galloway. She's a graduate student at the university of Waterloo. She in master of public health program. Welcome to the show this evening, Heather. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, the, this whole, you know, I, I'm a bit older, so that my, you know, my experiences in social media are a little 
different perhaps than most. I, I don't have the years of, of, you know, sort of learning how to build my life around it, such as, you know, it's more like just trying to figure out how to fit into it. But for a lot of people, you know, people that are coming up, you know, they're now, you know, they're now mid, you know, mid-aged adults who grew up with, you know, social media as being a real thing. And for young people, especially today, social media is, you know, drives a lot of people's lives and choices. You know, how do we combat this negative messaging from these pro-eating disorder groups um, with positive stuff? Because we don't seem, it doesn't appear that that message is as strong or as uh, easily found as some of these negative uh, messaging. Right. Well, I think the source of the problem is a general lack of awareness about uh, the nature and prevalence of eating disorders. I think a lot of people don't appreciate how common they are um, and what they look like and how they manifest in people. Um, and that kind of contributes to an overall stigma surrounding eating disorders that can make people feel really um, isolated and uncomfortable seeking help. Um, so these social media um, communities, uh, this content that promotes and uh, glamorizes eating disorder behaviors, they kind of provide some relief from that uh, isolation in a way, which is really scary. Um, and it kind of allows people to connect over shared experiences, uh, to validate each other's behaviors. Um, so I think the solution to that, how you combat that, is to improve awareness about um, eating disorders in general and also about this type of content to allow people to recognize it um, and avoid it. But I think the messaging has to be as hip and cool as the stuff that the pro eating disorder uh, people are putting out. These, you know, I, I checked out a little bit of it, uh, and it, it appears that you know it, it kind of talks to, especially talks to young people in a way I think is just very uh, impactful and, and probably ultra destructive. Um, but I think the positive messaging on on how to do that, you know, how to how to you know the the stuff to combat this needs to be just as cool. It doesn't appear to be that way. I, I, I'm hoping that, you know, you and your peers are working on stuff that's a little more uh, attractive, if you will, perhaps to some of the people searching for certain kinds of content. Um, what's the sort of thinking around that? And where are you, where are you getting advice and direction as it relates to the social media impact versus the message itself? Well, I think that uh, you're right. Social media is a powerful tool. We can also use it to spread positive messages. I think that's a really important point. 100%. But the information, the information you're spreading has to be evidence-based. The National Eating Disorder Information Center um, does a lot of great work, and they have a lot of important information to get out there. Um, but I agree it needs to be put forth in a way that's accessible to people, uh, young people who are um, – you know, looking to have a good time online, um, but also to make sure they don't fall down, you know, a dangerous hole with the pro eating disorder content. What, what impact do you think these sites have on kids more so than adults um, in terms of making choices when they look at some of the images? And I don't mean just uh, pro eating content, but I mean, content as it relates to, uh, you know, music videos and fashion and glamour type stuff. Um, you know, a lot of young up and coming TikTok, new TikTok stars are out there and, you know, they're, they're, most of them are uh, provide, you know, show a lifestyle that may not be attainable for a lot of young people, including a certain kind of body image. Um, you seeing that that's having a big impact or is it just something that I'm kind of looking at as a therapist going, hey, this isn't right. And maybe I'm a little offside. I think we definitely have to question everything we see online. Um, I think the big risk is that uh, these lifestyles that are portrayed online are going to be, and they are normalized uh, for young people. 
So we get seeing them so much, as you say, like not just uh, pro eating disorder content, but you know, all types of unrealistic content, unrealistic beauty standards, for example. Um, they're so common, they're so heavily spooned to our young people that they just are normalized now. Um, and so that's really dangerous because now you have young people looking at this content, thinking that it's okay, that that's what's expected. And, and at the end of the day, so when, when you're in your program, in your graduate program, um, from a public health perspective, uh, which is even, I guess, even more impactful or more difficult, perhaps, we've got a couple, only a couple of minutes left. And what I want to ask you is, from a public health perspective, the stuff that you're learning and the stuff that, you know, your peers are coming up with and what we're talking about for the future, are, how are they looking at addressing this from a public perspective when we're dealing with a, a pretty, you know, uh, sophisticated, you know, somewhat public environment, but not really? Yeah, I think that um, social media is definitely, it's such a public environment and it's so, so different from, you know, the kind of public health stuff that's been done in the past. Um, so I think that public health organizations really need to move the focus to social media, right? We need to use social media to build awareness about um, pro eating disorder content um, in order to educate people about what it looks like and how to avoid it and recognize that it comes with really important risks. Well, I really appreciate you joining us, Heather. I'm talking to Heather Galloway. She's a graduate student at the University of Waterloo and Masters of Public Health Programs. Uh, we often have these kinds of conversations about uh, health and wellness and as it relates to social media. We'd love to have you come back and join us. Uh, thank you for joining us right now. We're going to go take a little break here. Uh, this is Yona Bud at 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. Boy, busy night. We've got so much more to do. The hour is almost flying by. It's almost over. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. I just, poo, just turned on the mic and bing, it's almost done the first hour. So here we are. Lots to talk about. Thanks for joining us. This is uh, The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host. We really appreciate your being here with us this evening and making us your choice because we you know you have others and we're glad they choose us. So, or chose us. I know you choose us, but you chose us. Anyway, people are dying these days. I mean, kind of, kind of a bit of a, I'm in a better mood than I should be for this, this kind of lead in, but you know, we've been talking about it for months and months. I've been talking about it for years and years. People are dying as a result of a poison drug supply. And even prior to the, the, the you know, the advent of fentanyl, uh, I mean, we didn't invent it, but you know, all of a sudden it's here, um, you know, because now we're looking at fentanyl as being the killer, you know, PCP was the thing back in the day when I first started out as a street worker, um, you know, as an addiction counselor back in the day, you know, was PCP and there was all kinds of other you know, drugs and you know chemicals used to hurt people, kill people, you know, render people blind and so on as a result of unclean drugs. So it's not something new. Okay. It's something that's been around forever, but now we're keeping track because everyone's talking about it because fentanyl has now made it an international situation. The source of drug toxicity isn't limited by the way to just homeless people and addicts that you see on the street. I've had situations where people, lawyers, doctors, people that, you know, participate in perhaps just, you know, a weekend, uh, you know, little, uh, little cocaine with their buddies playing a little cards. No, no big deal. Nobody has a problem. And it's tainted Coke. And they end up in the hospital with a fentanyl overdose and have to explain that to their family. Uh, I have kids, 17 year old kids that have a fentanyl overdose as a result of smoking marijuana that was laced with fentanyl. I'm talking about Percocets and I'm talking about Oxycontin. I'm talking about uh, MDMA. I'm talking about all of the street drugs that are out there right now that aren't coming from a reputable source, meaning either 
you know, one of the major, you know, uh, drugstore chains properly prescribed by your doctor stands a chance to be tainted, if not exactly with fentanyl, but with something that's probably not good for you and taking you to a place that you don't need to be, maybe make you sicker than you should be, or perhaps take your life away. And there's a program in Vancouver called MySafe. It's a pilot project that's uh, all about access to prescription medication through a secure uh, environment. Uh, they're talking about biometrically operating vending machines. This kind of sounds like a, a lot to talk about. Uh, Mark Tyndale, he's our guest this evening. Dr. Mark Tyndale, I apologize. Um, I met him. He's just so too cool to, to have to call him doctor because he looks more like a guy I'd like to hang out with. Um, but anyway, Dr. Mark Tyndale is our guest this evening. He's the founder of MySafe uh, Society and an expert on harm reduction and public health. And I'm so excited to talk with him. Uh, Dr. Tyndale, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Uh, can I call you, Mark? Is that okay? That, that'd be perfect. Okay. Mark, you know, it uh, sounds like you've been at this a long time. I've been at this a long time. You know, continue to have conversations about safe drug supply, uh, talking about, you know, decriminalization has been going on forever and ever. Um, we're, we're at a place now where, you know, the, 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 the rate of death is, is, is soaring. Uh, we don't seem to have any real solutions that make sense in line. Uh, programs like yours where people can have access to uh, prescription meds that will help them from being sick, which keeps them from going on the street and robbing, stealing, and cheating. Uh, sounds like a great plan, but the resistance must be great. How do you keep going every day? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, as you say, I've been at this for a long time. I've probably been doing harm reduction uh, for over 25 years and really started in the HIV world. I'm an infectious disease doctor by training and, uh, and just uh, got further and further into harm reduction. Um, in your intro, you, you know, you said that this problem has been around for a long time and certainly we've had uh, issues with overdoses, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, um, more correctly, used to record about 200 overdoses per year, uh, mostly due to uh, heroin overdoses. Um, but now we're close to 2000. So obviously, uh, things have changed dramatically. And uh, access to, uh, to heroin, even if it was from the illicit market, uh, rarely was, uh, was killing people. Um, but now the uh, potency of uh, fentanyl is uh, is killing people. So things have uh, dramatically changed in the last five or six years. One would argue that there's no such thing as heroin on the streets in Canada, at least uh, anywhere that's real heroin. Uh, but uh, I can't tell you that for sure. But I know there's a lot of testing going on. I got a box of uh, fentanyl test strips that I hand out to people when I see them on the street, literally, uh, to see if you know, to help them to make a decision of what they're using. So part of the conversation here that you're chatting about is the, the safe supply of drugs, in this case, through an operating vending machine. I want to get to that in a minute because that sounds really cool. But, you know, what about the testing of the drugs themselves before they're used? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the uh, trajectory to get to a safe supply. But, uh, you know, um, I spent a lot of my time at supervised injection sites, uh, and we watch people overdose and we reverse their overdoses with naloxone and then yeah, testing yeah. was introduced. And so people could test before, but we noticed that most people will use that anyways. I mean, you've gone to a lot of trouble and expense to uh, access these drugs and knowing there's fentanyl in it uh, clearly isn't a deterrent anymore. Um, the testing that we can do quickly is not usually uh, quantitative. So people, you know, it's just yes or no. So, and fentanyl test strips and things. So, um, and then 
you know, spending time watching people come in with uh, tainted drugs and just waiting for them to overdose seemed a bit ridiculous when we had alternatives. So why would you, you know, what benefit is there to watching people overdose, um, even if you can reverse their overdose when you could uh, give them a safer alternative? So that it's it's pretty obvious to me from an ethical standpoint that, uh, you know, if people are knowingly using drugs that could kill them, then and we have alternatives, then why would you deny people uh, access to those alternatives? So when you're talking about these alternatives, you're talking about providing, let's say, an opioid, like provide them with fent- with provide them with uh, with uh, oxy or whatever it is, or heroin, perhaps um, yeah. through some kind of prescription program. Or just, you know, here's where you go to get your safe fix and no one really knows who you are. Or give me an idea how that all plays out. Is it a program or is it just? Well, I think my idea would be instead of buying it from an unknown source in a dark alley, that you could go and access it from a, you know, a regulated safe supply. But on the route to to getting there, which I think we have to get there, um, the program that I got funded is a prescription based program with uh, with hydromorphone. So they're dilated oh, okay. pills oh, that are okay. currently yep. quite, you, you know, heavily used on the street more, you know, in Vancouver, um, because there was traditionally such a good supply of heroin, uh, diverted prescriptions weren't the primary opioid, but in most cities across Canada, um, dilated and oxys were really what kept the illicit drug market going. So people are quite used to using them. Um, the program that I got funded um, specifically uses hydromorphone, um, but there's no reason that technology couldn't uh, also support uh, giving people heroin or even uh, regulated fentanyl. I mean, it, uh, it's really the drug isn't the most important thing. Um, it's allowing people to have a, a, safe, a safe supply. Where does, uh, you know, Suboxone and Methadone, I mean, for years, uh, and, and obviously, you know, still currently, we're, you know, we're providing a lot of people with uh, tens of thousands of people in Canada with daily uh, Methadone and now Suboxone, which is another uh, opioid antagonist. Uh, where does that fit in an option? Or is it, you know, here's your drugs? And does it, and, and again, the next question is, does it come with any kind of therapy? Uh, you know, what, what do I get with my drugs? Do I get fries with that, so to speak. But, you know, are yeah. you getting are you getting some therapy with that? Are you getting, uh, you know, a, an option to have an antagonist instead, instead of the actual drug uh, play that out for me yeah. well i think that uh the you know harm reduction is based on you know the the phrase meeting people where they're at and right now people are choosing to use opioids that are dangerous for them on the street so i think the first response is to give people access to an alternative opioid and then uh you can talk about getting them on to uh a replacement therapies with suboxone and methadone. And certainly many people will end up going on that trajectory, but uh, today they're not ready for it. And there's uh, a lot of people who are on methadone who still use uh, street drugs, Absolutely. probably to a lesser extent, um, which right. is good. Um, but um, it doesn't mean that people automatically become abstinent from, from getting these. Now, you could find people that are uh, doing very well on their suboxone or methadone and uh, they have no need for street drugs. And that's great. So uh, I'm not, um, you know, we're not discouraging people from doing that, but um, for the most people, most part, people are using these drugs to uh, escape their trauma and numb their pain and they want to get high. 
and uh, methadone and suboxone are not designed for that. And so uh, for a lot of people, they're in a position where that's their mind, you know, that's their main goal. And uh, we have to uh, meet them where they're at. So the goal here is really to keep people from killing themselves, not necessarily getting them off drugs, so to speak. Well, I think that's my, I mean, you know, the, we're evaluating the program. There's a, there's about, uh, I'm writing scripts for almost a hundred people now, uh, on four different machines and, uh, you know, people are doing way better. You know, you get up in the morning and instead of going hustling for drugs, you uh, go to a machine and you get your drugs. So your life changes quite dramatically just from, uh, you know, um, access. And uh, then people have the opportunity to, to do other things and to work on other issues in their lives and, and social things and housing things and work things. So uh, it really allows people a, a bit of an opening where they can, uh, you know, um, access help or uh, other services if they need it. So it, it's hugely beneficial just having access to those drugs. And many people um, the trajectory of their street drug use will will change, and so uh, I, I think people will do, will do better. I got I got time for a quick question and about a thirty second answer. Why are you doing this for a living when you could probably do other things a lot less stressful? Oh, I I mean I, I know I've always uh, wanted to work with uh, people that were interesting. So uh, it, it seems kind of boring being a doctor and having people do what they're told. So uh, this, is a, this is a challenging and I've met some very, uh, very great and fascinating people on the way. And we tend to uh, stigmatize and devalue people when we see that what they're, what they're doing with uh, street drugs. But uh, they all have fascinating stories and uh, I feel I can make some contribution. You know, that's a great answer. You're my kind of guy. We're definitely going to have you back on again. I'm talking to Dr. Mark Tyndale, founder of the MySafe Society and an expert on harm reduction. Just one of the good guys. Thank God we have heroes like him out there doing what they're doing. Okay, so we're going to be back in a little while. We're going to have a major break here between the hour, the road to recovery on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Yona Budd. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, and welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. You are on the road to recovery in our second hour. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud, and thank you for joining us. Uh, shout out to my uh, youngest brother. It's his birthday today, so if he's driving around listening to me right now, keep your eyes on the door on the road and have an amazing birthday. So, you know, we are um, lots going on today, right? You can be a busy first hour. Um, I, I'm gonna I want to bring this subject up for, but I don't want to I don't want to put myself in the same situation I was in uh, months ago when I opened the discussion about vaxxing versus not vaxxing and I had, you know, va- vaxxers and anti-vaxxers calling and, you know, some uh, giving different opinions. The anti-vaxxers weren't very happy with me. So I'm going to open it up to the maskers and the anti-maskers, uh, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 if you want to talk to us right now. I want to know how you feel. Mask, no mask. Are you wearing one? Are you not wearing one? You know, since my mother passed, I've been, uh, I've elected to uh, say uh, prayers on a regular 
regular basis daily uh, for her and uh, do that for a year, actually for 11 months. It's part of a, um, some religious beliefs that we and traditions that we do. And, um, and my, so I, in order to do that, I have to go to a synagogue that has at least 10 other or nine other men, 10 of us all together uh, in order to qualify for the, for the prayer to be valid and so on without getting into that whole divinity thing. I'm in a place with a bunch of guys that frankly don't, really care much about maskings and vaccines and you know the whole uh, corona thing to begin with and we got into it a few days ago and i ended up having to walk out and call the rabbi and said listen can't come back there and anyway he created a space for me at the other side of the room so i can do what i need to do safely but these guys don't want to have any discussion with me about you know wearing a mask especially as they're you know two guys are coughing the other guy's sneezing into his hand and then touching things like i just wanted to run away and hide but you know it's not just you. It's lots of people. It's not just me. It's lots of people who are not comfortable not wearing a mask, perhaps, or aren't comfortable wearing a mask. We want to hear from you. What do you think? Is it is it a helpful thing? Is it something you're doing, even though in many places we're not um, we're not mandated to do it per se? Want to hear from you? Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred, and that's what it's all about. Mask up now. COVID nineteen has a bunch of tricks up its sleeve, according to this article that I've been reading. Omnicron BA2 variant is just one of them, according to the experts. Next up is Omnicron XE. So far, that's been found in the UK, China, and Thailand, and now they found a couple of them, a couple of people with this new variant, the XE. Sounds like a, a, a new version of a, of a car. Anyway, I have no idea how, what, what's going to happen here. Uh, read about the concept of excess mortality being tracked worldwide. How many more people are dying than usual? The, according to the uh, report, uh, 18.2 million people have died so far. Anyway, without getting into all this, uh, put your mask back on, most experts are saying. Uh, Peter Juni, who is the outgoing scientific director of our COVID-19 science advisory table, says that based on wastewater testing, right, they test the wastewater, give us some indication of what's going on out there, 100,000 new corona cases per day. But the infections haven't peaked yet. So there's a little bit of a lag time. Hospitalizations will take some time. But wearing a mask, right? Like wearing a mask, when somebody's coughing and hacking and sneezing, you really want them to have something on their face, especially most people aren't aren't back to the old, you know, this the, when the pandemic started, everybody learned how to sneeze or cough into their arm. I don't see that so much anymore. So I'm choosing to wear a mask when I'm in situations where I just don't feel it's safe, safe for me, not necessarily safe for anybody else. So what do you think? Is it something you're up to? Is it something you're doing? You're not doing? Are you, uh, you know, people bugging you about wearing a mask? Is it an argument that you're having with people about it? We really want to hear from you and hear what you have to say. I'm interested to know uh, if you're in or you're out, you're wearing one, you're not wearing one. And it's kind of, you know, changing the dynamic because vaccine, no vaccine, a little different conversation. No one really knows if you're into it, not into it, right? But mask, no mask, it's very obvious. You're either wearing one or you're not. And if you're not, why not? A lot of people want to know. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Why isn't there one on your head? Right? And, you know, in there are now where the, the governments, the provincial governments looking at keeping the mandate in places, in, in, in place in certain um, locations, uh, such as uh, medical facilities and uh, places where there's vulnerable uh, individuals. Uh, but I'd like to know what you, you know, what everybody out there is thinking. You know, are they thinking that this mask thing is just a, a bunch of uh, crap or, you know, we're going to continue to wear them for the rest of our lives, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like 
it's kind of the new normal, so to speak, if there's such a thing as a new normal, right? Anyway, that article was uh, from uh, Heather Malik. She's an amazing writer. Uh, she writes for the Toronto Star. Uh, you should catch up on her stuff. She's really good. But, you know, it, there are – here's the issue. That, like, there's a mask thing going on here, but when you get south of the border, there's the mask thing isn't really going on, right? People aren't so into it. Masks are no longer required on U.S. transit after a Florida judge, he just ruled – COVID-19 masks requirements are unlawful. This was a judge in Florida that uh, took on this case. And the move effectively means that masks are no longer required by U.S. airlines for the first time since February 2021, when the Biden administration first implemented the rule. So if you remember, before Biden, there wasn't really any big push for anybody to really do anything, masks included. Uh, and then Biden came in with the, you know, the premise of, you know, saving the world and saving everybody from COVID-19. And these are the things he had planned to do. Um, so clearly, now that he's in office, there were a bunch of mandates in place. They've been challenged. So that has no effect on the Canadian airlines, by the way. But it could be kind of funky when you're traveling in between Canada and the U.S. So uh, here's what you need to know about masking mandate lifting and whether it will affect your upcoming trip. If there's a trip that you got planned, I have one planned at the end of May. Uh, hopefully uh, that all goes through uh, the way it should. I've been looking forward to it for I know close to a year can hardly wait. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, there's a lot of stuff to navigate if you're thinking about traveling. So what actually changed about the rules for masking on U.S. flights? Here's the short answer is that masks are no longer required immediately on U.S. flights and other transit modes previously affected by the mandate. So that would include trains, boats, planes, automobiles, all that stuff. Right. I'm just kind of making a joke about the movie, but the it's, you know, on any public transportation, mass transit uh, type uh, place uh, um, structures in the United States, masks are no longer required. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC is what they're known as, they brought rules in in February 2021 requiring all people in the U.S. to wear masks on airplanes, trains, taxis, transit hubs, uh, which has been enforced by the Transit Security Administration, the TSA. Well, Florida U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell on Monday ruled that the mask requirements overstepped the authority of the CDC and didn't face adequate consultation from the public. Well, a little late in the game to be uh, talking about whether the public jumped in or not. I mean, there's been a ton of people up in arms for who knows how long <clears throat> complaining about different uh, mandates and so on. Anyway, after Mizell's decision, the CDC stated that masking rules will no longer be enforced. So as soon as the, the judge made the decision, the CDC reversed their position. So here's the question. The question is, why wouldn't the CDC push back, right, if they're so concerned about it being, you know, a safe way to go? just because a judge ruled otherwise. So um, that's my first question. I don't know if you have an answer, give me a call, 416-870-6400. It's just one of those, hmm, I wonder why. However, still recommend masking on uh, indoor public transportation. So <clears throat> where they're, uh, they weren't, uh, weren't they going to lift the mask mandates on, on flights pretty soon anyway, the question is. Um, the mask mandates have been repeatedly extended, actually. In fact, the mask mandate on transportation recently uh, was supposed to expire on the 18th of April. It's passed already. The same day that Mizell's made her decision. However, last week, the CDC decided to extend the mandate through to May 3rd, citing the need for more time to assess the effect of rising cases. So if I'm flying between Canada and the U.S., here's the question. Will passengers still need to be, to, to be required to wear a mask? Yes. 
So you and other passengers will still have to wear a mask. Canada's COVID-19 rules dictate that air passengers have to wear masks when arriving to Canada by plane or leaving Canada by plane. So what happens with connecting flights, right? So if you find yourself on a domestic flight as part of the connection, meaning you're traveling between the two cities and you and other passengers won't be required to wear masks, right? So it, 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 there's going to be some tricky stuff. And it's and, and here's the problem. Airline, you know, we're going to get into this in a, in a few minutes because I have an expert coming up on, on travel uh, in the next uh, segment, and we're going to have this spill over. But, you know, here, here's the real question. The question is how do you know what's up, right, exactly? How do you, how do you know what your options are? Um, if you're not like right in the game, you know, you're on the plane, you're not sure. And there's tons of people, um, that are, uh, that are interested. We have a caller quickly on hold that wants to talk about masking. Um, please put the caller through. Hi, hi, this is Yona. Hi there, Hello? how are you? I'm good. Who am I talking to? You're talking to Clinton. Okay, Clinton, Clinton or Clifton? No, Clinton, like the, like the president. Okay. Like the president, okay, uh, uh, Mr. President, Mr. President, and I appreciate you calling. We've only got less than a minute, man. I want to hear what you have to say, though. Go ahead. My, my question is, just in regards to the mask, um, if you're wearing a mask, you should be protected. So if somebody else is not wearing a mask, if the masks work, if that's your philosophy, then it shouldn't matter if somebody else is not wearing one if you're wearing one. I agree 100%. I just don't want anybody giving me a hard time about wearing mine. No, absolutely. 100% agree with you. We should have the freedom Perfect. of choice. Same with the vaccine. Perfect. We should have freedom of choice. Protect ourselves and be responsible for ourselves. Okay, buddy, we are exactly on the same page. I'm really glad you're a listener, by the way. I need more people like you and appreciate you calling us. Uh, yeah, call in another time when you got, actually, we have a, an expert coming on to talk to us about travel. So if you like, feel like calling us back, we've got some, it should be an interesting conversation when we talk about, uh, what went on recently with Sunwing, but appreciate it. You're absolutely right. We all have choices. I chose, I choose to wear a mask. I just don't want anybody getting in my face about it. Have a great night, Clinton. I appreciate you calling. We'll be right back and do a whole bunch more stuff here. Yonabud 640. Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Listen, if you're thinking about traveling, let's uh, you need to listen to this session because uh, that's what we're talking about right now is how Canadians can navigate travel in the age of Omicron, right? So after sustained, you know, pandemic-induced dip in travel, like no one was going anywhere, uh, Canadians are slowly starting to board flights again. They're starting to travel. International air arrivals are up compared to last year, of course. Not hard to get up from not much. Uh, and Statistics Canada data shows, although st- still significantly below pandemic levels, people are traveling. System-wide decisions from mask mandates to access test to test significant impact on overall safety and so on. Um, everyone's concerned, right? So the most critical precaution is to be fully vaccinated and to get your booster, according to the, to the experts. Vaccination remains the most central and important thing you can do to protect yourself against getting really, really sick while traveling or from COVID-19, uh, from COVID-19 while traveling, but also actually um, getting infected, period. So do your homework, think about those that are around you, <clears throat> and so on. So the, the risk is to travel. I mean, I'm about getting ready to, I'm getting ready to take a trip at the end of May. I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit nervous, uh, but getting on the air 
airplane. The experts say that the modern airplanes typically have the best uh, air circulation, HEPA air circulation filtration, um, so it should keep the, um, the, the the spread down to very little. Um, and if you turn off your <coughs> cabin, turn on your cabin air, but only once the plane takes off and the system starts to run, if you turn off your uh, cabin air, it uh, your 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 fan, it'll circulate the air, and the cabin air actually renews itself every two to three minutes. So not a horrible place to be on an airplane, but what about when you get to these places and all that kind of stuff? So we have an, a guest who's joining us tonight. His name is Andrew Demours, and he's the co-founder of Fly Trippers. And um, we're going to ask him a bunch of questions. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. I got to tell you, from a broadcaster's perspective, saying the name Andrew Demours is something I look forward to because it just runs so beautifully off my tongue. So welcome to the. Uh, I, I, I'm expecting you to be, you know, a, you know, some exotic singer or musician or something, but maybe in another life. Um, Andrew, first of all, tell us a little bit about Fly Trippers and um, and what you guys do. Yeah, so we're a travel website that helps Canadians travel more for less. So we spot flight deals like. Next week, I'm going to Dubai. So from Montreal to Dubai for $190 round trip. So that's the price I Come on. Yeah. So this is the kind of deals that we spot from Toronto. There are very often very good deals to South America, to Europe. Uh, you know, we regularly spot deals to Europe for $400, $500 round trip instead of what, you know, a lot of people are used to paying $1,000 for those trips. So uh, we, 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 we help that way and we help by uh, giving out tips and just sharing our own experience. We travel a lot ourselves, so we know how to how to save money while traveling and during the pandemic. Well, we know how to figure out all the rules and all, all you have to think about when you're traveling during the pandemic. So. Oh, amazing. What a great job. I mean, maybe in my next life, I'd like to come and work for you and just travel around and, and do stuff. So um, good to know. So uh, just, I'm going to check you out after anyway. Fly Trippers is where you can go and get some really, really good deals. So beyond uh, advertising for your for your company, uh, I do have some, some questions around travel specifically, uh, Andrew. And, you know, things like, <clears throat> I guess the first question is I, I'm hearing and <clears throat> reading an awful lot about passengers these days and, you know, having, you know, very little patience with staff, uh, a lot of, a lot of arguments, a lot of disruption, a lot of unruly passengers. Um, is that something that you're hearing about? I mean, you say you travel a lot. You're, you're, I'm sure your team travels a lot. Um, sitting on an airplane, what have you noticed lately that's any different than maybe a couple of years ago? Uh, well, to be honest, the, the conflicts and, you know, the, 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 the unruliness was, really about the mask a lot in the u.s especially because you know think about places like florida where uh they haven't worn masks for over a year in some cases for for anything anywhere so now they have to wear one going onto the plane so they're kind of frustrated about that but the u.s lifted their uh, mask requirement on planes last week so that's probably not that much of an issue anymore unless um you know, uh, people who keep wearing their masks get into fights with people who don't want to wear masks. Uh, I'm not sure because I haven't been to the U.S. since last week. But, uh, no, I think uh, the, 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 that's been, you know, obviously uh, played in the media because it, it makes for great stories. But I, I've been on about, a, I don't know, like 70 flights uh, during the pandemic. I've never really had any issues at all. So. 70, that's amazing. 70 flights during the pandemic? Yeah, something like that. I, I didn't look at the stats uh, recently, but uh, yeah, I've, I've been traveling since summer of 2020. Well, as soon as uh, you know, COVID nineteen insurance, travel insurance was available. Uh, I you know, ah, uh, gotcha. 
my own personal risk factor being young, being, you know, um, good health and with no other uh, health issues at all. Uh, I figured whatever I could do here, I could do anywhere else as long as I'm doing this, you know, taking the same precautions. And like you said, it's, I think it's really important because it's a really, really persistent myth, but the airplane air quality is better than any interior space. So if you're going into the, a crowded arena or, a, you know, um, a sh- to see a show in, indoors, to go in a restaurant, they, they don't have HEPA fil- filters. Uh, the, the airplanes are really, um, many studies have been, uh, been uh, done about that. And airplane, airplane air quality is really, really good. Contrary to what you might think, because it's, a, you know, a metal tube and you're all stuck together, but it's actually really good. So there are a lot of people I know today that want to travel uh, business class, first class, uh, gives them more space, less, less other, pa- less, you know, smaller number of passengers to contend with. Um, your organization, is it just essentially economic, ec- economy based, like d- deeply discounted stuff? Or do you provide, uh, you know, discounts for, you know, business travel, first class travel and so on? Yeah, we this, the deals we spot are mostly for economy, like uh, all of them actually. But we do have a section about travel rewards as well. So for those who are financially responsible and know how to um, use credit responsibly, that means paying off your credit cards in full. Obviously, every uh, every every month, every statement you paid all in full. Uh, there are really great ways to get business class tickets for much less with aeroplan points and airline reward points like that. So there's a, for example, there's a card right now that gives you like 60,000 aeroplan points as a welcome bonus. And that's enough for, uh, uh, you know, a round trip business class flight. So that's for free. So that's, wow. you know, that's the best way if you want to, if you want to travel, which is not my experience because I'm really more of a, you know, a budget traveler who wants to travel more. But if you do want to yep, travel yep. in business class, Definitely the way to do it is with rewards points because it's much more valuable this way. Uh, it's, the, it's, the best, it's the best use of rewards points for sure. Appreciate that. The uh, elephant in the room, the SunQuest debacle. What do, you, what do you have to say about that? People being, being I mean, this, first of all, the, I guess the, the first question is as a traveler, forgetting about your professional life, as a travel uh, traveler, you know, in terms of um, getting stuck places, getting, you know, uh, canceled and, and, and rebooked trips and so on, um, how do you manage that, you know, in a world of, let's say, uh, COVID where it's a much harder to get, you know, rooms in certain places and so on? I mean, did you, have you experienced um, any kind of, setbacks in your own travel similar to Sunwing and and if so uh, what was that about yeah for sure and you know that's what I, I gave as in terms of tips about this situation precisely is that you know if, if you're traveling even the slightest you're, you're going to face inevitable like flight delays or, or flight cancellations at some point it's just you know even weather related where we live in Canada uh, you know there are storms we're hopefully out of that for, for a couple of months now but I mean normal times if you're dr- traveling during the winter there's probably going to be a storm at some point. And, you know, airlines can't do anything about that. I know it's really great to, everyone loves to complain about airlines and everything. And some, most of the time they deserve it. But a lot of times, the, you know, delays are caused by weather and they really have no control over that. And so what the, really the best tip that so many people don't know about is really to have, it comes back to what I was talking about with our section about travel rewards. If you have a travel credit card, most of them have flight delay insurance. So, that way, wow. you're sure yeah. to be. Um, you have five hundred dollars to go and get a hotel and meals if there's a delay. So uh, it happened to me in February. So I missed my connection because of a delay. I had to stay in Houston overnight. Um, got a you know very nice three hundred dollar hotel uh, for free with my in- insurance. Uh, went to the to the restaurant, got a good meal. You don't have to wait around and hope for the airline to give you you know um, uh, a voucher or anything. You just you, you're insured, so you have your credit card. It completely covers your costs. 
Um, you can go straight to the hotel, no waiting in line. So you, the best tip is really take responsibility and not depend on airlines, because especially if the, the delay is weather-related, airlines don't owe you nothing. And it makes sense. I mean, they don't control the weather, so they won't even give you yeah. a hotel. It's up to you. So yeah. having that great, that good credit card will help you. Um, in the case of Sunwing, it's really uh, it's, it's not without it's not outside of their control. They've been hacked, but I mean they're responsible for that. Um, and then they have to also compensate you. So it's really important to know that to know your rights. So in the case of Sunwing, you um, if you, if you were delayed by over nine hours, you're allowed to get five hundred dollars cash. A lot of people don't know this, and they won't even claim it. Now, obviously, Sunwing might not give it to you proactively, of course, if you don't ask for it. So. By law, they have to give you $500 per passenger. So, uh, again, good to know your rights and be informed about that. Oh, that's that's great. Is this any credit card, Andrew, or specific credit cards? Most travel credit cards that are branded, like, for travelers, uh, they'll have this flight. Oh, okay. Insurance. Gotcha. Okay. So, so specifically, um, like, a, of- like a MasterCard travel card or a Visa travel card or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, anything that's that gives you rewards points that are, you know, targeted towards travelers and usually these are the ones that have the best welcome bonuses because banks really want travelers as uh, as customers uh, they're very lucrative customers usually you know people who travel more they tend to you know spend a little more they spend they, they tend to pay well as well and not uh, and not uh, you know have uh, have issues with payments so um, in general they have really great bonuses to attract new customers and that's where you can take advantage as, as a traveler that you can get the bonus you can get that insurance too and that way you'll be covered when you, when your flight inevitably gets delayed. I'm talking to Andrew Demores. He's the co-founder of Flight Trippers, flighttrippers.com. We're going to have you back on again, uh, um, flight, I'm sorry, flytrippers.com. Uh, We're going to have you back on again, Andrew, uh, as time goes on, because you know a lot about travel, and uh, we got lots of questions as time, as things roll out in the summer zone, uh, you know, come, unfolds and just see how this all works out. So if we can catch you in between planes and countries and continents, boy, I really want to be you. I really do. Um, enjoy <laughs> yourself. Have a, have a safe, safe uh, summer, and hopefully We'll talk again very soon. Andrew yeah, Demore uh, is co-founder of Fly Trippers. Uh, you can reach them, flytrippers.com. We'll be right back. Some more stuff, some really interesting stuff about how to overcome drug addiction. We'll be right back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Boy, oh boy, the night's just flying by. Welcome back to The Road to Recovery. We are on the road, almost finished the end of our trip. One more segment left to go. We really appreciate you joining us. Natasha's in the studio along with Heather and myself. Uh, do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your, your pets, your dogs, uh, your animals, your seniors, people in your life? If you don't know where they are, you should probably check it out. Check them out. Make sure you have some idea where everybody is because today it's important that you know this stuff. If you think they might be in trouble, do, do call 911 immediately or you can call us here. 416-870-6400 and uh, our staff will try to connect us after the show and I'll help you in any way I can. You can also get a hold of me at 
5808-877-777-5808 anytime through the week. I'd be glad to uh, chat with you. And, um, yeah, we can uh, kick some stuff around. If I can help in some way, I'd love to. So there's a really cool – I read this article. I really, I really kind of loved it. It came from CNN. It's an experimental brain surgery uh, that's designed to help some people, not everybody, some people overcome drug addiction. Um, the story goes like this. Um, when her son bounced up the steps – uh, through the front door of the house, he shared with his mom and dad, her, her name is Gina uh, Buckhalter, uh, and she was weary, right? It was no secret that her son Jared was a heavy drug user. He's been addicted to opioids for more than half of his 33 years, so since he was about 15. Um, and they were used to surprises from him, right? This day, he brought a big one home. He said, they actually approached me about having brain surgery for addiction, she recalls him saying, and literally, I wanted, she wanted to pass out on the floor as she recalls the story, they were there was a research. There is a research team at Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, based at the University of West Virginia, and really only about ten miles away from where these people lived, where the Buckhalters lived. Um, and he was already the son Jared was already a patient at the institute, uh, where he was being treated by Dr. Mahoney, who's a specialist in substance abuse. So over the years, he tried, Jared had tried and tried many, many times to get sober. His longest stretch was uh, three and a half months, uh, but most of the time only lasts a few days. So his troubles began early. You've heard this story many, many times. He grew up in, uh, in, a, in a small town. Uh, he was nervous, anxious kid. Uh, he also liked basketball and football. He was uh, fielding Division One scholarship for offers in 10th grade. He, the local paper named him Mr. Everything. He was like the athlete, ath- athlete's athlete. And in his senior year, uh, it was all taken away. He had a shoulder injury. He was 15 years old, and that led to a prescription for opioid painkillers. His doctors prescribed those pills for six weeks. After that, he never looked back. He just started finding them on his own. So at his, in his 20s, he was using heroin. Um, that's all he could think about was drugs. Uh, but when the doctors approached him this time, he immediately said, yeah, let's do it, because that's how desperate he was, according to Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So Bacalter became the first patient in a four-person research study testing the safety and feasibility of deep brain stimulation. So another friend of mine does this kind of stuff, this uh, uh, brain stimulation uh, in a non-invasive way, um, and they have a clinic here in town that does this kind of stuff. But um, this this is this is deep brain stimulation through uh, through um, uh, surgery. It's it's invasive versus non-invasive, right? Um, anyway, he's the uh, his doctor Ali Raza, who's the neurosurgeon and Rockefeller's director. They put a, a hole in the skull. They insert. Uh, an electrical probe into uh, Jared's brain, a fine piece of wire, barely a millimeter wide, they say. And then the probe is in place. They, the real work began. So as they, as he lays somewhat sedated, they show him a series of images on a monitor, piles of drugs and others' pictures that are meant to induce the cravings and the anxiety that has haunted this young man for over 17 years. And based on his responses, the doctor is able to adjust the probe a little to the left, a little to the right, like, I don't know, man. Isn't this not super cool? Anyway, to make sure that it, it's, that it sits in the right position a little higher up. And then when they get it in just the right position, they put the probe in and they leave the probe in place, right? 
So it would restore what the, the, the team hoped that the electrical signal would restore healthy function to the damaged brain areas and free him from the nonstop cravings that kept him a prisoner uh, in, in, drug, in, in his drug addiction, pretty much. So deep brain stimulation, by the way, it's widely used to treat Parkinson's disease. It's approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to treat other ranges of ailments, including uh, severe epilepsy, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and so on. It's not new, but it's new to treat addiction. So substance abuse disorder presents a much more complex uh, set of um, challenges, I guess. Um, more com- it's more behavioral challenges, emotional challenges. Uh, Dr. Nora uh, Volko, she's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, says that deep brain stimulation was first tried on a handful of drug users in China, but little was known about the long-term outcome. So to Bockhalter, to Jared, uh, and raise it, it was worth the gamble. There are people dying 100,000 a year. We all know the numbers and so on. And for those end-stage severe cases, uh, DBS, deep brain uh, stimulation, might be exactly what they need, right? Um, so counseling and anti-addiction medica- medications help a lot of people. Uh, but some need a little additional help to break the cycle of drug dependency. Sometimes, quote-unquote, the brain's just not wired properly. So as he explains, as the doctors explain it, the brain... Uh, of a heavy drug user f- changes physically. The brain actually changes over long-term use, right? And uh, it affects um, the nucleus uh, accumbens, which is re- which regulates the function of the neurotransmitters called dopamine, right? So the nucleus accumbens is the part of the brain that has the you know controls the neurotransmitter over dopamine and it's what's known as the brain's reward system right dopamine's the brain's reward system so the brain circuitry that leads us to eat or fall in love or do something really cool or indeed anything that requires even a hint of motivation motivation reward satisfaction all of that comes from that same place in the brain so for some people that stimulation or that reward is drug use right so when you first take drugs, you get the dopamine high, and the more drugs you take, then there's less and less and less in susceptible individuals. The result is an intense craving and obsessive behavior because you can never do enough to keep the dopamine levels to a level that keeps you satisfied, so to speak. So by placing this electrical probe in the brain, in, this, in the nucleus accumbens, so he hopes to restore normal brain function. The wire also stimulates the second region of the brain, which is the frontal cortex, which is vital to the higher thought and decision-making process, which also is damaged by heavy drug use. So they got the, they put this wire in your brain, right? Check it out. Put this wire in your brain. Find the exact place based on your responses, and uh, it's, it works like amazingly well, amazingly well. Transcranial magnetic stimulation is another version of this, but it's non-invasive. You wear something on the outside, right? Um, uh, Dr. Steiner is a good friend of mine. He has a clinic in Toronto here that does that, uh, that specializes in, in TMS. Um, and it helps a lot with obsessive compulsive disorder. It helps with cravings for alcohol, nicotine, opioids, and so on. We use, uh, I use neurofeedback devices in our practice here, uh, in, in, in our facility. So, uh, but it, it, this is a much more experimental version because it's much more invasive, right? It's actually drilling a whole small hole in the brain, in your head. Put this little probe in. Um, other things that have been used that where people are starting to look at is ultrasounds. That using an ultrasound might help change this transcranial medical uh, magnetic stimulation and deal with the the dopamine receptors in the brain. Right. So the bottom line is it's really cool that they're looking at some stuff out of the box 
to help people that are suffering, right? So surgical procedures are not the panacea for, you know, the overdose crisis. It's not going to change overdose crisis, uh, certainly over, overnight, but it's going to save lives for sure. And it's a $50,000 surgical procedure, um, and it still requires the support of family. You still need to have, you know, a, a home to eat, a place to sleep, and, and, and good, uh, good therapy is a very much a part of the process. You know, you can't do this without good, good talk therapy to support uh, the, the, um, uh, the recovery. But overall, if it gives you a leg up, it gives you a heads-up shot at, um, you know, getting off uh, life-threatening Drugs like fentanyl and opioids, and I mean, they're all life-threatening if you don't use them. Uh, I mean, no street drugs were designed to be used, but certainly if you abuse anything, it's not going to be good for you. But, you know, these kind of drugs, opioids in particular, it's a really serious problem today because of fentanyl. And this is an opportunity perhaps to give people just a little bit of a helping hand to get off this stuff and uh, maybe uh, get on the road to recovery, so to speak, and uh, put themselves in a healthy place and have a great life. Uh, free of being a victim of drug abuse. When we come back, we've got some other stuff to talk about in terms of abuse, uh, kind of an interesting story that really hit me in my heart here a little bit. So we're going to talk about that as soon as we get back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to our last segment here. It's a little sad, isn't it? We're going to be, I'm waiting for you guys a whole week and then I get you only for a couple hours and then you're gone again till next week. And oh my gosh, I just want to do more, but really do appreciate the time we spend together. Your love, I love you guys. You're the best audience ever. Um, Heather and Natasha, the greatest team you could ever ask for. Uh, we do miss our friend Corey, but uh, he's doing other good stuff for in, in the station doing some stuff that he needs to do anyway just it's you know it's just a love fest here at, at course and we just really like doing what we're doing and i really love talking to you so glad you could be here with us give us a call 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 we got about eight or nine minutes to keep going here and uh, if you want to give me a call i'd love to say hello um Here's a serious story. Okay, so the Human Rights Commission joins a call for public inquiry on sexual violence in prisons. Now, I spent uh, 10 years as a um, chaplain, a Jewish chaplain in uh, the prison system um, and got a chance to get around quite a few of the prisons in Ontario and several in the federal system. Um, I spent most of my time at the Ontario Correctional Institute, OCI, which is a facility that provides both uh, incarceration and therapy. Uh, it's a very unique program and um, save a lot of lives, help a lot of people, and you know, turn a lot of lives around for sure. But, you know, there's something going on in the prison system, has been forever and ever, both in the male and female prisons. Um, you know, we're talking about sexual violence. So uh, this is a, a conversation about sexual violence in prison. So if it's going to make you uncomfortable, I wish you a good night. Maybe it's a good time for you to get off the air. Otherwise, hang in because we're going to talk about this. So the Human Rights Commission says Canada needs an independent study to inquire um, the seri- around the serious issues uh, related to sexual violence and coercion in federal prisons for women. So my experiences are primarily in male in male prisons. I can tell you that sexual violence is rampant in the male facilities as well is in the female facilities. Um, but there's a call now uh, for the, the commission is now calling on such an inquiry. They made it they, this call about a year ago uh, by the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry 
Society is a fabulous organization, Elizabeth Fry. Uh, they um, look after women who are in prison. It's um, uh, they help you uh, while in prison, while you're out of, when you get out of prison. They help you get relocated. There's uh, they have uh, shelters and so on. An amazing organization. So the commission is deeply concerned by reports about sexual coercion. Violence and abuse in the federal correctional institutes, and by the way, it happens in the provincial ones as well, and a lack of action to address the problem, according to Chief Commissioner Marie-Claude Landry. A prison sentence deprives a person of their right to liberty, but it does not deprive them of their right to security. Sexual coercion and violence in prison is unacceptable and criminal, Landry says, adding that the Correctional Service Canada is obliged to protect and support the victims of these crimes, even if they're prisoners, by the way. Yeah, no kidding. So the statement comes 10 days after a former prison guard at the Nova Institute for Women in Truro, Nova Scotia, pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting three women while they were inmates. We cannot expect the victims to report incidents of sexual coercion and violence without the proper supports and mechanisms in place. Now, understand, if you're a prisoner, very difficult to complain to a guard about another guard. It's very difficult to get the information out there that you're a victim of, you know, unwanted kissing, sexual touching, uh, forced intercourse, and others, other type stuff. I'm sure you can use your imagination. There are considerable gaps in the federal system as it relates to the prevention of sexual problematic behaviors behind bars. We've known it for years. Now they're starting to take a look, apparently. Correctional investigator Ivan Zinger, he recommended to the public safety minister that they fund a study uh, into the prevalence of sexual coercion and violence conducted by independent experts. So in January, Public Safety Canada posted a request for proposals. They have a contractor to find a contractor that um, looking at the problem among, amongst inmates who are indigenous, racialized, or otherwise at risk. they got to look at everybody. Indigenous, racialized, or at risk. I mean, all women in prison have an issue, whether you fit in those categories or those communities or not. They want to suggest ways to intervene and prevent these crimes. A lot of the crimes are perpetrated by staff or allowed to take place by staff. So it's much more difficult to cut this off when it's happening on the inside. So that's that's here where this report's going to be a problem. So the next step now, that's where we are, right? The next step is to write a pilot project, a pilot study. That's scheduled to be completed by this coming December. Like, it's a whole year's going to go by. By the time they find someone to do it, by the time they do the actual test, do the actual uh, study, it's going to be difficult. It's, it's going to be difficult to get uh, prisoners to actually speak if they're currently incarcerated. So we're going to have to rely on people who were incarcerated to come forward, many of whom just want nothing to do with the system anymore, don't want to hear about it, don't want to participate. There are some that have brought lawsuits forward against the system, against particular guards for certain kinds of improprieties. But for the most part, when you're out of jail, you don't want to go back. And the last thing you want to do is be involved in some kind of investigation, right? So Zinger, the investigator, also recommended that the government um, introduce legislation similar to the United States Prison Rape Elimination Act, which requires prisons to enforce a zero-tolerance policy towards sexual assault and collect data on the incidents that do occur. Now, again, we're talking about a system that's policing itself. So guards are looking after guards, and for the most part, there's a brotherhood and sisterhood amongst um, prison guards, as it should be. I mean, they're often in dangerous, difficult situations alone and are left to their own devices often. So they want to be at least together. You don't want to snitch on one or the other. It's, so it's a very difficult 
it's going to be a very difficult uh, data gap, data grab or data capture in terms of getting the information that's needed. Despite the recommendations, uh, the investigators' latest report um, has observed no appreciable difference in how correctional services prevents, tracks, or manages these incidents and continues to get complaints from inmates who have witnessed or experienced sexual coercion and violence. We continue to hear cases of alleged perpetrators simply being shuffled around within and, be, and between institutions as the preferred method for resolving formal complaints. So if a guard has a complaint against them at a by ABC prison or ABC facility, they ship him over to XYZ facility and kind of undercover under, under the, under the, under the carpet, so to speak. And, you know, no one's the wiser. This stuff is going to come up sooner than later. Eventually they're, they're going to do some really good work and come up with some solutions and ideas around how to prevent this kind of stuff. It's just, you know, you're in prison. You're not only are you a prisoner doing your time. Now you're at the, at the beck and call and at the whim of some guard who feels he needs he or she needs to take advantage of you to make themselves feel better. And I guess that's kind of the sad world that we live in. Anyway, hopefully that's going to turn out to be something, something good, and we'll stay tuned and keep track of how that report turns out and share it with you as we know more. You know, it's been a great night. It's great being with you all. Uh, just hope everybody remembers to talk nice. Just talk nice to one another. If you don't have something nice to say to somebody, probably better to say nothing at all. My mom used to say, you know, just go out there and say nice things. Just spread nice, right? So go out there and spread nice amongst everybody. Try a little bit harder to be considerate of those next to you and around you. You know, the back to the old days of maybe opening the door for someone or helping somebody with their groceries. Can you imagine? The best way to get past this whole state of mind that we're all in, this funk, if you will, this post-pandemic funk, is to just be nice with one another. And what happens is when you're nice, nice usually comes back to you and it makes the day just that much better. We'll see you next week. Let's do this again. You're on the road to recovery. We'll be back next week. Yonabud, 640 Toronto.